Okay, uh, truth time. I, um, yesterday, as we finished a wedding here at the church, I was talking to Becky Ogle, and um, I said, you know, I'm a little uncertain about how tomorrow's going to go. And she said, well, just be like a politician and don't answer the questions. <laughs> So uh, I'm not sure I'll be able to answer these completely, but I did say that I would try to respond to the questions as best I can. Not all questions have a complete answer. Um, We were here last night for movie night, and we watched The Power of the Heart. And one of the comments that was made in the movie was that sometimes when we ask a question, there isn't an answer, there's a path. I think that's a really helpful insight that not all of our faith questions have explicit, clear answers, but sometimes we're led to follow a path where there's more unfolding to take place over the life journey. So um, in that spirit, I'm going to try to respond to some of the questions. There were some real doozies in here. (laughs) Um, But I'm going to try to uh, address several of them uh, this morning and uh, kept the other ones um, that will be put in the mix for next week's sermon. So if you're around next week, uh, come. There's part two to this uh, sermon. So the first question is, who is the Holy Ghost? Um, That's a question that people struggle with, um, the Holy Ghost being the Holy Spirit. Um, The King James Version is the the version that some of you may have grown up with that talks about the Holy Spirit as the Holy Ghost. this, I, I know for myself when I was growing up, I really did not understand what the Holy Spirit was. It was kind of a mystical kind of awesome thing that I just didn't really have much resonance with because I just didn't understand what it was. Um, and when I grew up hearing the Holy Ghost, I as a young child watched Casper the Friendly Ghost and thought of, you know, this, this ghost only who was more holy and spiritual and, and so forth. But the word for spirit in the Bible... The word for spirit in the Bible in the New Testament is pneuma. So if you know of any mechanical uh, device that is pneumatic, you know that it is powered by air. Pneuma means breath. That's all it means. So when you think of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, think of the breath of God. It's life-giving. It's always dynamic. Breath is always either going out or coming in. It reflects a giving and a receiving. The ancients, the Hebrews, um, the word for spirit was ruach, and God's ruach hovered over creation when it was all darkness and void at the beginning before creation came into being, and it was God's spirit that brought creation into being. So when you think of God's breath, Think of the early chapters of Genesis when God said, each day of creation, God said, let there be light, let there be. God spoke the creation into being. That's how the writer of Genesis imagined it, okay? It was this wonderful story imagined by the writer of Genesis as God speaking creation into being because words have such amazing creative power. But what does it take to speak a word? If I let all the air in my lungs out, I can barely speak, right? It takes breath to speak. 
And so God's breath is what empowered creation. It's creative energy. It's creative power. It's what gives life. And the ancients, they didn't understand modern science. They didn't understand how we have to take air into our lungs and the lungs are able to filter the oxygen and put it into the bloodstream and carry it to the different organs and then back for the release of the toxins back and then to get fresh air back into the lungs. They just knew that to be alive, something left the body that they could feel but couldn't see, breath, and they had to take it back in like those those um, bubbles when somebody speaks. You've seen those little bubbles on cartoons and stuff when somebody speaks. It's as though their spirit went out and then they knew it had to come back in for them to be alive. That's what spirit is. So it's not something as complicated as maybe we make it in terms of understanding the Holy Spirit and, and the Holy Ghost. It's simply breath, and it's God's breath and God's empowering breath that we've been given to live our lives. I hope that makes some sense. It's somewhat helpful in terms of understanding the Holy Spirit. So when, when the disciples are given the Holy Spirit, they're given God's uh, life-giving, life-creating breath through which we communicate with our words as God's people. All right. What proof is there that Jesus is the Son of God? Is Jesus God? And then another one, Very, there were a lot of similar questions. Is Jesus God? I understand Jesus to be sent by God, but feel God is more than Jesus. If Jesus is God, it is confusing as he prays to God. I think Jesus is God as a human, but God is much, much more. Um, yeah, these are really good questions um, because the church has struggled with this understanding of who Jesus is. Um, it was the early church who understood the identity of Jesus post-resurrection. Um, we don't know if everything in the Bible that is ascribed to Jesus was really from Jesus, and I'm going to get to that in the next question so we don't know exactly what Jesus said about himself. We do know that whoever wrote the Gospels and wrote the other letters in the New Testament, they had a lot to say about who Jesus is and his identity. And then the early church over the first few centuries had a lot of ideas about who Jesus was. And to declare that Jesus is the Son of God can mean different things because I would say that each one of us is a child of God. You are a son. You are a daughter of God. So in some ways, we're like that, with, with, with the same as Jesus. But as the, as the early church understood it, they understood it to be a more special relationship, a singular relationship that Jesus had with God. First of all, let's sort out, was Jesus God or Jesus the Son of God, and what does that distinction mean? Um, I personally, and you know, let me, let me say, I should have said this at the beginning, I'm speaking for David Young here, okay? I'm not speaking for you. One of the beauties of our tradition is, is that each person is encouraged to think, to struggle, to live out one's own faith journey, and to come to your own faith uh, understandings and how you live your life. And so I'm not here to tell you how to believe um, or what to think or how to live your life, but I will share my own experience of these years that I've had. Um, and if that's helpful, great. And if it's not Throw it out the window. Um, but, but I personally do not believe that Jesus was God. Um, 
Jesus um, was a human being who lived a full life just as we do. Um, and I think that the church, we, we got into a lot of confusion when the early church started saying that Jesus was the same as God, um, that Jesus was God. It makes the mystery of the incarnation um, challenging to understand God becoming human and becoming one of us. There's a part of me that loves that and believes it, wants to believe it, but I also believe that Jesus was fully human. And if he was only God pretending to be human, that's not helpful to me in my faith journey. That Jesus had to be fully human, and therefore he felt the full range of emotions as we do. He felt joy, he felt sadness, he felt elation in relationship, and he felt abandonment and despair when he was alone. Hence his words on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, so he was real in that sense. And, and it, what, I, what I believe about Jesus and what made him so special was that we all have the opportunity to be in a close relationship with God. Jesus was the obedient one. Now, the, the Latin for obedience means to listen. We think of obedience as being do what mom or dad says. With don't question it, just do it. We think that's obedience. But obedience literally means to listen, to be all ears. And, and the way I think of that is, is that Jesus had the biggest spiritual ears of anybody who's ever walked on the earth. That he was so open to and receptive to and yearning to listen to God at every step of his life journey, that he was so in tune with God's will that he was able to live it and teach it. And that's what made him so special. And the church and the early Christians recognized that special nature of who Jesus was, that they said, there's something special here. And so they gave him that title, Son of God, that special relationship of being so close to God. But I don't believe he was God. I just believe he had that special relationship. Um, it can be confusing. I don't have all the answers. Um, I don't understand it completely. It's a mystery. Um, the next question is, fundamentalist Christians quote John 14, 6, which is... Um, uh, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. You've probably heard that passage. Um, when I do memorial services, we use this passage a lot because it comes at the end of the passage about in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I should have told you I'm going there on purpose to prepare a place for you, and so on and so forth. And then Jesus ends that passage, or the writer of John has Jesus end that passage um, with I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And so the question is, is that literal? What does that mean? Um, does that mean nobody comes to God except by Jesus? And I leave that last part off when we have memorial services because we have lots of people here from different faith traditions, and I don't want to go into the same explanation I'm going to give you right now at every memorial service. So we typically don't include that last part about no one comes to the Father except by me. Um, I, I believe that, again, we don't know if Jesus said this or if this was the early church's way of saying something about Jesus, which is what I tend to believe. 
I'm going to say that more with the next question that has to do with fundamentalism and biblical literalism. Um, what I understand that to mean is that if Jesus did say it, which I kind of doubt he did, but if he did say it, he meant it in a way that was no one comes to a father-like relationship except by me. Because the, one of the unique things Jesus did in his life, that close connection, all ears with God was, he took this distant God who the Jews had, had understood God to be, this distant God, and he brought an intimacy to the relationship. He called God Abba, which is Papa or Daddy. Now, that was seen as heretical by uh, good Jews. You don't call God as distant to be revered and feared. And Jesus called God Dad because he had that close intimate relationship. And so I understand this to mean that no one comes to that kind of intimate, close, loving relationship except through me, which is that's one of the gifts Jesus brought us was that closer relationship. So, um, but I, I don't go through all that at every memorial service. So the next question is, I guess my issue is taking the Bible literally or not. I feel it reflects the biases of that time what do I pick and choose to be accurate, or do I follow word for word? And then they put in parentheses, dinosaurs, lots of laughs. Um, in our tradition, in the United Church of Christ, there are many different viewpoints. And there are some people, not all that many, but there are some who tend to take the Bible more literally. And that's okay, because we welcome everybody, and it doesn't matter what your viewpoint is. But the, the majority of folks who are part of the United Church of Christ come from a tradition where we use our minds, we take our minds and reason as far as we can, and then we make the leap of faith. We don't check our minds at the door and then just blindly go back into a first century worldview and just accept everything in the Bible as though that's exactly the way it happened and God was dictating and, and every word in the Bible is literally the word of God. For me personally, I don't take the Bible literally at every turn, but I take the Bible very seriously. I don't think the Bible was intended to be taken literally. That's not how people understood the world. I don't think that's how the Genesis stories of creation were written. I mean, who was here? Who knew? It was an understanding of trying to get in touch with why God created the world and why we're here, not how it happened, but why we're here and what's our purpose. And the parables of Jesus, they're not to be taken literally. They're to be understood at multiple levels, and then we try to apply those as we live out our faith. So, And I can show you where the Bible contradicts itself. Um, so I don't take the Bible literally at every turn, but I do take it seriously. Um, and I look for what's being taught. Um, some people want to hold, hold it to every single word, and I think, I think that, that is holding... Jesus accountable to the Bible when there's so much we don't know about Jesus. But when you read Scripture, if you get in touch with the Spirit of Jesus, then it seems to me the Bible ought to be accountable to the Spirit of Jesus, not Jesus accountable to every single word that's in the Bible. So um, there are different ways to interpret it, and certainly you know, each of us is entitled to our own viewpoint. I don't take it uh, literally, that doesn't mean we get to pick and choose. I mean, there are parts of the Bible I don't like. There are parts of the Bible that I don't think are true. 
but I still think we need to read them and we need to wrestle with them and understand them. Many are, there's a difference between, um, there are different kinds of truth. There are time-bound truths, things that were true at a particular time, and things that are timeless. I've said this before, but a time-bound truth would be how the Apostle Paul treated women in the early church. Women are to keep silent, to cover their heads, all these things. They weren't supposed to, to participate. Uh, but later, Paul also said that in Christ there's neither male nor female, but all are one. That's a timeless truth. And as we've come to understand God's revelation over time, we know that certain things that are okay in the Bible, slavery, the treatment of women, and so forth, we know that's just not acceptable. That's not part of how God in today's world wants us to live. So I think there are things in the Bible that are time-bound and other things that are timeless, but we don't write those things out of the Bible. They're there. All right. Um, the next question, does God test us? That's a good question. Does God test us? I tried to talk about this a little bit last week when we dealt with good and evil and the whole theodicy, odyssey. Uh, God... I believe God does not test us. Life tests us. Other people test us. At times my wife tests me. She's not here, I can say that. <laughs> and don't tell her I said no. But no, I mean, think about it. Life tests you. Um, something tragic happens. A horrible accident, some life-threatening disease, either in yourself or in a loved one. God doesn't will that to happen. It happens. Life tests us. Other people challenge us, test us, do horrible things to us. But I don't believe that God does that to test us. I believe God loves us. And that no matter what happens, no matter what life throws at us, no matter how other people treat us, God promises to be with us. God promises not to leave us alone. And that is a far greater reality than a God who tests us to see if we're worthy. Because God already loves us. God already loves us. So that's what I think about that. The follow-up question was, if it doesn't matter how good we are, how many times are we to go to church and how much are we to give, etc.? Uh, because if our redemption is already granted through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, what's up with all that? Well, um, let me tell you what's up with that. Just because we're not tested doesn't mean we're not to live lives faithfully. The whole issue of faith and being a Christian, for me, is to be in relationship. It's to be in a relationship. And that, I am much, the older I get, the more interested I am in what somebody, how somebody lives their faith, not what they believe. Not what they intellectually assent to. Because we can intellectually assent to a lot of things. But our belief doesn't make our relationship. Think about your closest relationships, be it with a family member, a spouse, a friend, a child, a parent, whomever. If that relationship is close and loving, and there's a time of testing 
in the relationship. You don't want to just hear what they believe or think. You want to know how they're going to be in the relationship. Well, that's what God wants for us. So it doesn't, it's not just a matter of saying, oh, it doesn't matter. It matters if we care, if we know that God loves us and wants to be in relationship with us, then to live in a covenantal, faithful relationship with God matters. It matters. God will forgive us, yes, but it matters how we live, how we practice our faith. So I think it matters greatly how we are in the relationship. And I realize my time is up, and I still had a few more, but um, we'll pick it up next week. So um, thank you all very much for your questions. I really appreciate it. There are some great questions, and we'll continue to struggle with these. And um, I invite conversation. I know it wasn't uh, a time to do that this morning, but at the coffee hour or any time, if you have any questions about anything or you didn't quite understand anything I said, just ask Michael. Um, <laughs> no, uh, let's continue the let's continue the conversation because questions are so important. And uh, again, I really appreciate what you all have done. So let's turn in our programs as we rise in body or spirit and join together in our affirmation of faith.